0: Some of y'all may know this about me. My very favorite movie in the whole world is It's a Wonderful Life. And I know it's a Christmas movie, but I could watch it any time of the year. I love it that much. If you've ever seen it, there's this wonderful scene in the middle. It's not a super dramatic scene at first, but it becomes more dramatic as it goes. It's where the evil Mr. Potter tries to pull one over on our hero, George Bailey. See, Mr. Potter is the richest man in town, but he's not satisfied. He wants to own everything. He wants it all for himself. And the one person standing in his way is George Bailey and the Bailey Building and Loan. And so Mr. Potter sets up a meeting with George and offers him a job. Totally takes George by surprise. He offers him a job. And it's not just any job. It's a job worth $20,000 a year. Now, keep in mind, this was during the Great Depression. This was a ton of money George is dumbfounded. He can't believe what's being offered to him. Uh, Ten times what he makes as he sits there, what he's being offered right here. And he, he gets up to shake Potter's hand, and as they're shaking hands, the smile on George's face changes. Do you remember this? The smile actually turns into a look of disgust, and he pulls his hand away and begins to wipe it on his coat. And he says, no, 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 doggone it. No, I don't, I don't need 24 hours to think about this. The answer is no. And then he says to Mr. Potter, because he realizes what's, what's going on here, what Potter's really after here, he says, you know, in the vast configuration of things, I'd say you're nothing but a scurvy little spider. And then he storms out of the office. Great scene. See, George was almost drawn in. He was almost taken in. But then he came to realize Potter's motivation here. It was not to bless... George, it was to ruin him. He was trying to ruin him, to buy him. Um, Y'all, as we walk through the the letter to the Colossians here, the Apostle Paul's words in Colossians 2, this is, in a sense, what Paul's trying to warn us against, right here. He devotes an entire chapter to it. What we're walking through, chapter 2, an entire chapter, Paul says there's a danger for Christians to be taken in by false teaching, by people who are religious schemers, who want to diminish or discredit what we have in Jesus Christ. And it can be very easy for us, because things can sound good on the surface, it can be very easy for us to shake hands with something that is, in the end, meant to ruin us. It's meant to draw us away from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Jesus. So what Paul is concerned about here is the Colossian church right here in uh, what we now call Turkey, the Colossian church, which is in the Greek world. There's a ton of error surrounding this church. There's a lot of false teaching coming at them from different directions. And Paul is going to begin right here actually fleshing out the specific teachings that he wants to combat. He wants to warn them, don't just fall for false teaching in general, but now I'm going to tell you exactly what to look out for and I'm going to inform you, Paul says, as to how Christ is better. Anything that's being offered to you, Christ is better, no matter how good that thing seems or sounds on the surface. Now, this, this is a letter written almost 2,000 years ago, halfway across the world, very different time and culture, but incredibly relevant. I think we'll see that as we go through. Very, very relevant, the issues that Paul brings up. Two issues in particular today that we should be pretty familiar with. The issue of philosophy and then also of religious legalism. Two things that are absolutely present in modern-day Western culture. Philosophy and religious legalism. Okay, We're going to take those in turn. Look with me again at Colossians 2, verse 8. What we just read. Paul gives a command here. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Be on guard, he says, so that nobody takes you captive. So the first thing Paul says, anything, listen, anything that steers us away from plain, simple, pure devotion to Jesus is a harmful thing. It's not a neutral issue here. Even if a person comes along with a different philosophy, a different belief, and they're tremendously sincere, they're not malicious, they're not trying to hurt us, but if it diminishes or discredits Jesus, Paul says it's harmful because it's, it's, it's taking us potentially away from what is true and what is right and what is good. And that's why he says, don't be taken captive by it. This is not a... A neutral kind of issue. Paul says you'll be imprisoned by a belief system if you're not careful. Now, what he's talking about in this case, he's talking about philosophy. Now, let's be clear that Paul doesn't see philosophy as a bad thing purely, as if somehow all philosophy is bad. No. Philosophy can be a good thing. But what Paul's talking about specifically, you see it, it's a certain kind of philosophy. He calls it empty deception. According to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, that's what he's concerned about. Now, here's the truth: the truth is that we're all philosophers. You may not fancy yourself a philosopher, but you can put that on your resume if you so choose, because every human being is a philosopher. Because all of us, every last one of us, we think about the world. We think about meaning. What what is the world here for? Why are we here? What's our purpose? Where are we going? What's the right way to live? That's philosophy. All of us ask those questions. But in this case, here in Colossians 2, the the church at Colossae, they were being fed not just general philosophy, but they were being fed philosophies that denied Christ. That, That people were trying to answer all of those big questions while disregarding God, making God no part of that conversation. And so rather than these people building their worldview on God, they were actually building it on themselves, based on the traditions of men and the elementary principles of the world. That was the problem. Um, that kind of philosophy is absolutely um, prevalent, even dominant in our culture. You don't have to go very far to find it. Um, let me tell you what's wrong with it. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things wrong with, with this way of thinking. I'm going to give you two quick ones, though as to why we ought to be very concerned when we see any philosophy of life that disregards God. Here's why. Because when we do what Paul's saying, these false teachers, they're, they're building their philosophy not on God but on man, on human beings. It's called man-centered thinking, right? Well, if, it, it, it makes sense if there is no God that our reference point can't be God. It has to be something else, and in that case, it has to be us, right? That's the whole way of philosophical thought. If you take God out of the picture, you can't dissolve all um, standards from life. There has to be a standard by which we measure the world and everything in it. And so what is that standard? Well, it has to be us. So we build everything around us, our thoughts, our opinions, our way of viewing the world. That's why Paul says, when we build philosophy on the traditions of men and on the elementary principles of the world, without regard for Jesus, what we end up with is just us and what we see in the mirror. If God is not your reference point, something else has to be, and it's going to be you. That's just human nature, right? So what's the problem with that? That, that? For some people, we say that's very liberating. Get God out of the picture. And I get to decide what's good and what's right, what my purpose, what my meaning are. Isn't that liberating? Well, no, here's why. Because if you take God out of the picture, then all we're left with is our own speculation and opinion. And every culture and every generation and every individual person has its We all have our own opinions and perceptions of the world and our place in it, right? How do we determine who's right? There's absolutely no standard. If every single person has a valid voice at that table, then we can never decide what's right and why we're actually here. We can never determine morality, what's the difference between right and wrong, because everybody's opinion is different. You can only feel feelings, but you have no standard, right? And so if everybody is, in a sense, doing what's right, feeling what's right in our own eyes, Paul says, what do we get in the end? We get empty deception. That's the phrase he uses, right? I may feel right, but I can't impose that upon you because there's no standard but ourselves. Paul says that philosophy will never work. When we we disregard God as our frame of reference for life, what we end up with is something empty and hollow. We're just left with us. That's not liberating, that's terrifying. Second problem with this kind of philosophy is that it's constantly changing. Even if you say, well, yeah, but I still want to build it on me. Well, guess what? The things you believe today are different than what you believed five and 10 years ago. And five and ten years from now, you're going to believe differently again. Because human thought and feeling and philosophy is constantly changing. Every generation carries different beliefs than our ancestors did. Were they wrong and we're now right? Who's to say? Tim Keller makes this point. I think it's really powerful. Uh, The great Ivy League institutions, you all know what they are. Harvard and Yale and Princeton, those schools up, up north. You know, those schools were actually started as training schools for ministers. Those were Christian colleges. And Keller's point is that if somehow, if the men who started those schools 200 or so years ago could see what those schools are teaching today, they'd be horrified. They'd want their money back. They'd be beside themselves, right? And people will say, well, yeah, okay, sure, sure, sure. But we can't teach the stuff that they used to teach back then. No, that was... That was hundreds of years ago. We can't believe that stuff anymore because we're modern and we're enlightened and we've got so much more knowledge than they had. We can't go back to those times. But y'all, here's the problem with that way of thinking. Our great-great-grandchildren are going to think the exact same way about us. You think about 50 years from now, 100 years from now, people are going to laugh at the things that we believed and said and did and war. You know, people are going to mock us just like we are tempted to mock those who lived 100 and 200 years ago from today because that's the way human nature works. You can't build your life on the shifting sands of human opinion because human opinion is always changing And every culture has its own set of beliefs. Every generation changes from what came before us. And so Paul says, listen, don't be taken captive by human speculation. It's man-centered, it's empty, it's hollow. You can't count on it. You can't stand on it. It's sand beneath your feet. Now, what do we stand on instead? Well, look at at verse 9. Here's the alternative, he says. For in Christ... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Uh, What we looked at last week, the early part of Colossians 2, we saw Paul say this this very powerful claim. He says, in Christ are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All wisdom and knowledge is ultimately found in Jesus. Well, right here in verse 9, Paul tells us why that's true because in jesus all the fullness of god dwells in bodily form because jesus is both fully god and fully man you and i don't have to speculate about what god is like you don't have to go to the grand canyon and stare up at the night sky and wonder what god is like no god has revealed himself to us very plainly and clearly in the person of Jesus. The Apostle John said that we beheld his glory because Jesus took on flesh and became one of us. He walked the earth with us. We don't have to speculate about God. But also, we don't have to speculate about ourselves, about who we are or why we're here. Paul says, in him you are complete. And he is the head over all authority. Jesus is the complete finished final source of your salvation. There's nothing that you and I need spiritually that we do not find in him. There's nothing else out there that we need to fill in the gaps with. We're complete in him. And Paul says Jesus is the focal point of the entire creation. Jesus is the focal point of all history. Everything that is comes up under his rule and authority. So Paul's point, when we consider what he calls empty, deceptive philosophy, philosophy that's based on man without regard for God, Paul says that has no foundation to it at all. You are left to your own opinions or the opinions of others, and in a week to six months or ten years from now, they'll be different. You can't stand on that. But when you consider who Jesus is, the divine Son of God, what he's done for us, he's made us complete, his place in the universe, that he stands above all rule and authority. When you consider those things about Christ, Paul says, why would you buy into something hollow and so vastly inferior when you've got the genuine article already? If you have Christ, then stand firm on him. Don't be taken captive by anything less than that. Okay? Now, if that's all the Colossians had to deal with, that would maybe, that, you know, okay, we can, we can handle that. But y'all, false teaching rarely takes on just one form, and the church in Colossae, they had multiple forms of teaching coming at them. They had the uh, kind of the Greek philosophers coming after them, trying to explain the world without regard to God. But something that was perhaps even more difficult for them, and maybe more difficult for us, they also had religious legalism being spread and and brought to their front door, Um, this is a teaching that came primarily from Jewish people, even Jewish Christians, some of them, where they were trying to take the Old Testament law and impose it on top of the Gospel of Jesus. Right? It's good to be saved to have Jesus Christ in your life, but that's not enough. You've got to front load and add on the Old Testament law. That was what they taught. Now, this was if you've, uh, Akali, if you've ever read the Book of Acts. Starting in about Acts chapter 10, this becomes a really big issue. Uh, Those who believed, because they were of the people of Israel, God's chosen people, right, the people of the Old Testament, who laid claim to being God's children, that when people started becoming Christians who were not Jews, they were called Gentiles. You and I, we're Gentiles. The Colossians were Gentiles. People who did not grow up in the house of Israel, but they are now becoming Christians, and these folks over here, are thinking, wait a minute, you can't just come in through the back door. You've got to come in just like us through the front door. You've got to become like us if you're really going to be a Christian and a child of God. And the big issue that they focused in on primarily was the issue of circumcision. Now, I'm not going to define what circumcision is. Um, uh, if you don't already know, then I, I say Google it. Don't do that. I don't, I don't know. Come ask me after the service. We'll talk about it. Okay. Um, their belief was you have to be circumcised in accordance with the Old Testament law or else you're not really a child of God. You're not the genuine article. Um, and so circumcision was a command given by God. It was They didn't make it up. It's in the Bible. And it was a way for, for God to set his people apart. It was a way physically for God to identify who his people were in the world. It was a removal of the flesh that signified a removal of human uncleanness so as to be pure before God. That's what circumcision represented. Um, And there were so many Jews who were adamant, you can't really be in unless you have fulfilled this law. Well, look at what Paul says in in verse 11 now. He's combating this and not so much in a subtle way either. He says, and in Jesus, verse 11, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. To be a Christian, listen, this, is, now, this would have meant maybe a lot more to them than it means to us now because we're culturally we're very much removed from the conversation. But Paul is saying to be a Christian means you are circumcised in heart. This is a circumcision made without hands. It's not a physical circumcision. But you have been, in a sense, established on the same terms. You've been identified as a child of God. You've been set apart as God's chosen people. Your uncleanness has been removed from you, not physically, but spiritually. And Paul says how? He says, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, when he says the removal of the body of the flesh, that sounds very physical, but he's already told us it's not. What Paul is saying here is that our corrupt sinful nature has been dealt with. Spiritually, not merely physically. There's no physical thing God needs to do to make us anything. What has happened is that Christ has taken on our sinful nature and has put it to death. Um, Removing the flesh, Paul says, does no good. It will do you no good. We need our sin guilt removed. That's our problem. And that's what Jesus has accomplished for us. Therefore, there's a new sign of this reality, Paul says. It's not circumcision any longer. What is it? It's baptism. You see that? Baptism. We are baptized into Christ. The reason we baptize, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons we baptize physically in water is to show union with Christ. And Paul says it, that we are buried with him symbolically and we are raised with him, raised to walk in newness of life, Romans 6 says. That's not a work of the flesh that we perform, that is, verse 12, through faith in the working of God, who raised Jesus from the dead. That baptism is an act of faith in what God has done for you, not in anything that we can do with our hands. So listen, just like with empty philosophy, Paul says, if you try to build your life on something you do that might add to your salvation... you're you're trading in something infinitely better that you already have. You've already been circumcised in heart, he says, and baptized with Christ. Why would you submit yourself to a a man-centered law that is going to add something to what you already have? You can't add to it. Um, Paul said it more bluntly to the Galatians. If you read through the book of Galatians, a lot of it has to do with this. And he actually has some pretty harsh things to say about those who try to get people circumcised, who have no business entering in to that uh, that physical thing, right? He says, man, if if you're going to get circumcised after you become a Christian, you're, you're, in a sense, you're denying Jesus. What you're saying is that the death and resurrection of Jesus is not enough for you, and there's more that has to be done. Don't be taken captive by that. Now, here's my guess. I'm taking a shot in the dark here that in the last week, no one has pressured you into circumcision in order to prove that you're a real Christian. That's probably, probably has not been your experience recently, okay? Um, but there's a larger point at stake here. This is not merely about circumcision. What, what Paul is saying, we've already seen it, that Christian faith is not built on the philosophies of men. But it's also not built on mere religious law-keeping. The Christian faith is, uh, is a life of obedience to God, yes. But the Christian faith is not built and established on law-keeping. That's not how we got here. And here's why the, the, um, the effort to keep God's law as a way of earning our salvation, here's why that will never work. It's right here in the text in verse 13. This is a wonderful little paragraph. Paul says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, Jesus made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, this is a popular phrase of Paul's. He uses it also in Ephesians 2, that we, we were all spiritually dead because of our sin. Not Spiritually sick, not spiritually confused. Spiritually dead. And when Paul uses that term dead, he uses it on purpose to, to, to disarm us, to shock us, I believe. And I don't say this to be crass, but it's true. Uh, a dead person can't do anything. And that's the entire point. A sick person can at least ask for help. A dead person's incapable of doing anything. We're dead. We can't change our condition. But God, we see it, but God has made you alive together with Christ. We passively receive it. He's doing the work. He brings us back to life by forgiving all our sins. you see that? This is the good news. The good news of what God has done for you, for you, through Jesus, a gift that we receive by faith in him. We add nothing to this. But here, listen, here's where folks will try to sneak back in, okay? It's not enough for Paul to say only this, because there's still a, a way of thinking being, uh, that, that the people were intruding upon the church and, and they were saying this. Listen, it's great to have Jesus. We're, we're, we're pro-Jesus. But listen, you can't really be a child of God through the back door. You have to become like the Jews, the people of God forever and ever. For, I mean, for thousands of years, you think God's just going to let you in through the back door? No, you've got to become like us, not just in circumcision, But we've got to put the whole law and overlay it on top of the gospel now. That means you've got to keep the Sabbath. That means you've got to do the ritualistic cleansings in the temple and that you've got to do the feasts. And, and, you know, all the things that we do, you've got to do those things too if you really want to be legit. I mean, if you're not going to become like us in that way, then how can you call yourself a child of God? But you notice how wonderful verse 14 is. Look with me again at verse 14. How did Jesus forgive your sins? He canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Y'all, if you are a sinner like me, the law of God is not your buddy the law of god is not your friend this is the age old way of thinking that we might fall into that says god gave us all those old testament laws there's 613 of them by the way commands he gave us those to function kind of like a ladder i like to use this illustration That there's a ladder and the laws represent each rung. And the more I obey the laws, the more I obey God, the higher up the ladder I'll climb. And eventually, if I'm good enough and diligent enough, I'll get to him. I'll get to God. I'll go to heaven. But do you see what Paul is saying about us here? You were dead in your transgressions. And not to be crass, but a dead person can't climb a ladder. There's nothing we can do. We're incapable of that, right? There is no person walking on this earth today that has the ability truly to, to obey God's law and make our way up to Him. We can't do that. We were dead in our sins. Uh, the, the, the Apostle James says it like this, that if we try to keep the whole law and fail only at one point, then we become guilty of the whole thing. Because we've been corrupted. Our sin has found us out. Even one violation of God's law makes us guilty before him. Our record is forever tarnished. You can't climb the ladder to get to God. That's the whole point. But that's also precisely why Jesus came. That's the reason he came to the cross. If, if you measure your life up against the perfect law of God, that law will crush you. I said it before, it's not your friend. That law will condemn you. Paul says it's like a certificate of debt against us. It is not a credit in your account. It's debt. It's against you. If all your sins are recorded in a book somewhere, that book is going to fall upon you and it becomes hostile to you. It's your enemy. You will have nothing to say before God that's going to get you in on that day. But that's not what saves us to begin with if the law condemns us, if the law is hostile toward us, then the death of Jesus becomes wonderful news because Jesus took that certificate of debt and he nailed it to the cross. He took it away from you and he put it upon himself. That means your sin debt was given to Jesus instead. He took the debt for you. He took on your guilt and he paid for it in full. Paid in full and done forever. The righteousness that God's law demands from us has been satisfied for us. Jesus has paid it all. Um, That's why there's no ladder to climb. The Christian life is not a ladder to climb. I've never once seen a Christian walking around with a necklace and on the end of that necklace, a ladder. Have you? Wouldn't that be strange? What's on the end of that necklace? A cross. And aren't we glad? That is our faith, a cross. It's been nailed to the cross, all our sin, and we are forgiven forever. Uh, Legalism is alive and well. The terms have changed. Again, you, you probably don't have people knocking down your door that you ought to be circumcised, that you ought to keep the Sabbath and the feast days and things like that. But it's the attitude of religious legalism, and I'm sure you've encountered it. Maybe you encountered it in your own heart, because it's in mine too. This attitude that says you're not really a Christian until and unless you obey certain rules and obligations. Only then are you legitimate. Um, y'all, any suggestion that you have that you still have a lingering debt to pay, and you better get after it to make sure your debt's taken care of, you've got to fulfill an obligation to make sure you're really across that line. That's called religious legalism. And it takes all the attention away from what Jesus has done, and it puts the attention back on us. Philosophy is man-centered, Paul says, if it disregards God. Legalism is man-centered too. It's just dressed up in religious clothing. It still puts the emphasis back on me and you and what we have to do to truly be in And Paul says, no, by faith in Jesus, all your sins are nailed to the cross. There's nothing else left to pay. It's been paid. You were dead, but now you're alive. There's no improving on that, y'all. That's what legalism tries to do. It tries to improve somehow on what Jesus has done, and there's no such thing. There's no improving on the perfect Son of God dying on the cross and rising from the dead. Amen? That's why Paul concludes, we see it in verse 15. How does he kind of end his thought pattern here? He says, When Jesus had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. You know what that means? Not even Satan himself can bring accusation and condemnation to you. The most powerful um, malignant force in in the universe, Satan himself, cannot come to your doorstep and bring condemnation upon you, no matter what you've done. Because in the death of resurrection of Jesus, Jesus has triumphed over him. And sin and death forever. Everyone and everything that might stand against Christ has been defeated. He is the conquering one. That because he died on the cross, because he rose again, Jesus Christ conquers all philosophy all man-made religion every spirit of the age there's nothing that can stand before him and the loudness of that proclamation is going to ring out through the universe forever y'all it's impossible for us to fathom that a million years from today we'll still be alive and we will we will not have grown tired of the good news of jesus christ not even close it will never wear out. It will never become old to us. We will marvel forever at who he is and what he's done. Do you see why Paul would be adamant that we don't get taken in by something less than that? They're, they're, every, everything that disregards Jesus, Paul says, ultimately, it's man-centered, it's flimsy, it's hopeless, and it renders us helpless to actually live and navigate the world. Why would I hitch my wagon to a philosophy that is less than what I've already been given in Jesus? When we we say it like that, it sounds foolish, right? But don't be taken in. Don't be taken in. Let's be like George Bailey in this way, right? He was offered something very significant, but then he realized what he would lose in the process. And as he wiped that handshake off on his coat... He thought about his own self-respect, about his own dignity. What's $20,000 compared to that? This was a man who couldn't be bought. Paul says that's how Christians ought to be. What can the world offer us that even comes close to what we've already been given free of charge? We have everything we need in Jesus Christ, and we can stand upon him. Let's pray. Father, would you be gracious to us this morning, in all the places, Lord, where we, where our faith is not strong and stable, and we've all got that. Starting with me, we've all got weak areas. We've all got some some beliefs that that are not solid. We we all may have areas of doubt and struggle. Lord, be gracious to us. Um, we know that you're patient with us, Lord. That you, you, you haven't waited around for us to figure it all out. And then you let us in. Father, you came to us through your son Jesus when we were at our very worst. When we were dead, you made us alive together with Christ. We know you are patient and gracious. But Lord, I pray that today would be an encouragement for us that where our beliefs are not fully formed, where where we might have areas of doubt that we've left uh, disengaged, that we would come to your word, that we would come to the standard of what is true, and that we would seek in Jesus Christ um, a foundation for how we think and how we live, that no philosophy, that no man-centered way of thinking could ever take us in or take us captive because we stand firmly on what we have and what we know in Jesus. Father, thank you that you made a way for us to have communion with you and to know you and to to spend eternity with you. When you looked at a a world full of dead people, you did not shrug your shoulders and, uh, and wash your hands of the problem, but you got your hands dirty. You came down to us and saved us. Father, thank you that that is a gift we receive and not something that we have to earn or add to. And so I pray, Lord, for us this morning as a church together, give us a firm standing, a firm foundation on what we know to be true. Not just to know it, not just to to know what's right versus what's wrong. But Lord, let it change how we think and how we live to know that I stand on the truth. I pray for me, Lord, it would change how I treat my wife and children, that it would change how I do my business, it would change how I pray, it would change how generous I am, it would change how I treat strangers and those even who are against me, because I stand on a foundation that is the perfect Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Would you make that true for all of us today and through this week? Don't let us trade in the infinite grace of what we've been given for something, Lord, that, uh, that, that's, that's not even worth standing on. Let us stand firm on Christ, and we pray it in his matchless name. Amen.